Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Ashley, thanks for taking some time to join me, mate. It's a pleasure to be here, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's my treat. We're going to explore, uh, I guess, a sector and a subsector that we have never explored before. So I was trying to, exp- as I was just mentioning to you, I was trying to explain this to my old man this morning while we we're having a coffee, and I could just see him connecting dots and be like, "Oh, wow! Like this is a whole thing that I never knew existed." So I think anyone that listens to this is going to have that same reaction. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping, and I know you will be a good field guide for this, but let's let's talk a little bit about, uh, let's do some icebreakers to begin with. So one kind of quirky question I ask guests is, if you could have one skill, whatever it might be, it might be martial arts, it could be another language, something like that, what would you choose? One skill, I mean, I, I think about this, so it'd be nice to be able to dunk in basketball, a basketball player. I think at the age of 45 and five foot 11, that's probably unrealistic. Another thing work-wise would be great to have, um, you know, a photographic memory. Again, probably unrealistic. But I think the a, a more realistic one is the importance of um, maintaining balance in life. Mm-hmm. And, and I see that as a skill, right? And, and so a, a wise person once told me there's three key areas of life. You've got relationships, career, uh, and your well-being. And in terms of your relationships, for me, it's like my wonderful wife. I've got four kids hmm. between 15 years of age and six months old, obviously balancing that. Uh, from a career perspective, it's your, obviously your, your, your um, job, your education, your development, et cetera. And then well-being, you know, both physical and, and mental. And on the physical side, things for me like running, cycling, weights, basketball. So coming back to the skill, it's about how do you balance those three categories within life to make sure you're giving um, appropriate attention to each of them to have, you know, fulfillment and happiness and productivity across a balanced life. So mm. that, that would be great to be able to master the skill of maintaining that balance, which is a, it's a constant challenge when you're juggling uh, four kids in a career. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't have kids, but um, I can only imagine. Yeah, you know, you, you're dealing with that this morning. Then you come in here on the train, which you said it was delayed. Mm. Jump into the studio, and we're talking about our senior secured loans and to thousands of listeners. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's funny. I, I, I joke recently with with friends and family that I went into the spectrum. I'm taking my 15 year old to her, her um, 
casual shift at a Mexican restaurant and on the other side, you know, changing nappies of my six-month-old boy. So it's uh, <laughs> you get um, the whole spectrum these for days. Sure. For sure. And uh, you've got the, the career uh, sorted as well. Yeah. Um, so, but I guess maybe dunking is probably equally as impressive in some respects. <laughs> so at five foot 11. <laughs> I wish I could. Yeah. No, my, my specialty is more three-pointers in basketball, but I've never been able to dunk, but I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, it would well, be nice. Never say never, mate. <laughs> without, without a mini trampoline anyway. <laughs> um, okay. So one, one icebreaker for um, the finance side of things, mm-hmm. if you could describe the macro environment right now, as succinctly as you can, how would you do that? Yeah, so, I mean, I I think this is an obvious answer, but we're facing a uh, variety of dilemmas that we never have before in combination. You know, you've got obviously inflationary pressures, you've got the velocity of rate rises, um, the recessionary risks that are now coming through, as well as at the same time having geopolitical risks and war going on whilst we're trying to come out of a global pandemic. It's not something that we've faced as investors or as policymakers before. And so- Mm -hmm. That's really challenging for policymakers in terms of balancing that, and obviously they're favouring um, controlling inflation at, at potentially at the expense of creating a recession. And what that means for investors is, I think that it's rarely been more challenging as an investor to figure out where to allocate your exposures or your risk within a portfolio. Mm. Yeah, I like that answer. It's there's so many big rocks that we're mm. trying to move, right? Um, yeah, it's and it's interesting to hear people's narrative around why those things are important and why other things aren't. And I think for me personally, the the view is just to get as many views as you can mm-hmm. and see what kind of interesting nuggets different people have. Um, I'm sure we'll, we'll we'll cover some of those in a, in in a few moments. But um, I got a, a kind of a, another question, which is more of an icebreaker, which is around risk adjusted returns and asset classes. You're obviously someone who gets exposure to a lot of different asset classes, you, you talk, you research, you do all these types of things. What would you say are some of the most compelling risk-adjusted asset classes? And maybe we can cut it in two for, say, retirees in that bucket and maybe accumulators in another bucket. Yep. Well, let, me, let me start with the accumulators then. So as an accumulator, I, I think about somebody that can take a longer-term view, be more focused on total returns. Uh, and potentially take illiquidity risk. And mm. for me, through my career, through decades, the, the most proven asset class from a risk-adjusted return basis is, is your real assets. So I'm talking about unlisted global property, unlisted infrastructure, where you can get you know very stable cash flows, good total returns, low volatility from investing in a diversified portfolio of high-quality direct real estate or infrastructure assets. Mm. I think that's been proven over decades. And if you're talk, take, talking about taking a 10-year plus view, then I think that's a, a good um, exposure to have within portfolios as an accumulator. Uh, for retirees, where you're thinking more about um, perhaps a shorter term time frame, uh, income's a focus, uh, mm. you need liquidity, then the asset class that we're here to talk about today, senior secured loans, I think is a great fit uh, for retirees, given you can get over the long term, you're talking about cash plus 4% type total returns, which is only just shy of the equity risk premium of cash plus five. So you're near equity-like returns whilst being senior secured to the safest part of the capital structure, having much lower volatility than equities um, and having, importantly for retirees, very stable mm. monthly income in an asset class that's been proven to be liquid for over 30 years. I would also mention that uh, 
this asset class of loans that we're here to talk about is, is also relevant for accumulators, but I gave the answer around more real assets there given the, the long-term time frame. Mm. It's interesting how you slice those up. And I feel like, particularly with the real assets, because it's for accumulators, I feel like a lot of us, I think, and I was talking to you about this off air, I think the lines between public and private uh, and real direct assets is going to become a lot more, I guess the line's going to be blurred because people are going to realize that, hold on a second, I can get this exposure many different ways now. And there's so many opportunities to access those marketplaces, which maybe 30 years ago was very hard. And I mean, you, you've seen this for years, as you said, but say for me, someone who deals with a lot of retail investors, self-directed investors, uh, even advisors to an extent uh, are now seeing more of this line up and the opportunity set come to market, which is really interesting. Yeah, I think it's great to see that the level playing field that's now occurring across institutional and wholesale or retail investors. You know, my background before joining Invesco was in more the institutional side, so advising industry super funds. And so they've been investing in real mm. assets and private markets for decades and had great success out of that. But, you know, managers like ourselves and others have looked over the last decade have been focusing on how that can be brought to the same quality of investment opportunities and assets be brought to the, the wholesale or retail market. And so I think that's great to be able to have that diversity. Mm, for sure it is. Uh, and we're going to get to, if you're a bit con confused about seeing secured loans and you're listening or watching, uh, we'll get to that in just a moment. But may maybe to start with um, just a little bit of background on you and how you came to be involved at Invesco, I think is really interesting. And kind of if you can fill us in on what you kind of do every day, which should, I think is, is really neat as well. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, if I was thinking about this, who sort of shaped my career, I think it starts with your your parents, right? My 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 father, accounting and uh, business background, so very much followed in his footsteps. And and my mother um, was a uh, dressmaker and teacher, and so they combined those skills into creating their own business that they ran out of our basement and grew into a successful hmm. importing and wholesale business over time, whilst driving me and my two brothers around the state to play basketball and so I suppose I, I learned from that about you know the importance of a strong work ethic um, focusing on what you're good at what value you can bring to mm. um, to clients or or um, colleagues uh, and then the importance of you know compromise and sacrifice for for family and so I mean maybe my, my dad still helps out the family with the on the accounting side in retirement and my mum's still she's knitted over at 600 um, woolen blankets for, for charity for kids in need in, in area time and, and so that you know mm. constant giving so that I mean that for, for many people your parents obviously influence you but in terms of career the three key people I'd highlight is um, in high school uh, the accounting and economics teacher who was also our first basketball coach as well as our careers advisor <laughs> I, I asked him on the careers advisory front you know I'm, I'm uh I'm interested in commerce but my my strengths are in mathematics um, what should I what should I look at? And he mentioned actuarial, which I'd never heard of before, never mm. contemplated. I ended up studying in that field and working in it for a couple of years, which was great. Grounding in um, attention to detail and mm. you know sense checking, being able to identify when numbers don't look right. But it was never for me longer term. And then I ended up spending ten years at Frontier Advisors, who advised the you know mainly industry super funds. In so I was working as head of debt and covered multiple asset classes and, and consulted to clients. But the key influence there on my career was Fiona Trafford-Walker, who's um, you know one of the best known um, consultants in the industry. Uh, she was head of the business and head of consulting at the time. And I was 
the privilege to work under her on some uh, some of the small to mid-sized clients that we had there and had the opportunity to write investment committee papers, present at investment committees. And one of the lines she used to say, it, we had held an annual manager function where managers like Invesco and our competitors came along to hear about what Frontier was and their clients were focused on. She used to say to the managers, remember there's thousands of you, there's only, at the time there's only 60 employees of, at, at Frontier, bring us your best, bring us what you'd put your mother in. So in <laughs> other words, just don't bother bringing us something that's average, don't bother bringing us something we've already got. Bring us an investment strategy or capability that you are genuinely good at that you would put your own mother in. And that stuck with me through my career in terms of really focusing and being honest about what you're good at and what you're not good at from an investment perspective. And then finally, um, you know, Invesco, we were discussing earlier, Marty Frank, the CEO of Australia, we've, we've known each other for close to 20 years and met uh, down at the Launceston Cup, actually. We mm, met, um, yeah. we had a mutual client down there and and we were there for a horse racing event and I met him and we were discussing, you know, industry dynamics and insights around various relationships in the industry. And, and I just found that um, I never had this feeling in my life, like, I want to work with this guy someday. And uh, he was Sydney, I was Melbourne-based, but ultimately we, when he moved down to Melbourne for the CEO role, we co-created the role that I now have, which is has great variety to it, which is... Um, you know, combining my background in manager research and client consulting to identify what strategies we should bring to market on the investment side and, and how to best communicate with them in market to make sure that our clients and researchers have the information that they need, those sorts of things. And so Marty, you know, is, is I mean, he's a um, phenomenal sales and relationship guy, but, you know, also a, a born leader. And uh, it's been a privilege to watch the way that he's built the business locally here and, um, you know, learn a lot from him about uh, leadership and the importance of external and internal relationships and the like. Mm. So that, they're the sort of the main influences on my career. It's really interesting hearing you talk about that. Um, I find that we often don't take enough time to acknowledge a lot of those people in our careers or in our personal life. And it's not until we, we ask a question like, we're asked a question like this and you reflect on it you think, oh, well, these are the people that have really influenced me. Hmm. And particularly as a young young investor myself, I remember doing that list just like you did. And I remember writing down all the people that have influenced me in different ways. And I found that really interesting in that hmm. it just gave me a chance to pause and be like, well, what are the things that these people do that I admire about them and what can I replicate? Yeah. And I just, that was a really good opportunity just to think, okay, I can incorporate some of what they're doing, what she's doing, what he's doing to make me a better person. Mm -hmm. And we don't, I, I, well, at least for me, I didn't really appreciate that until I stopped and thought about it really uh, intensely. Yeah. Um, we're, one of the asset, the asset class that we're going to talk about today in particular uh, sub asset class is senior secured loans. But maybe just to set the scene before we dive into what they are, can you just walk us through, I guess, how you see the differences between private markets and public markets we spend a lot of time in public on the equity side, but then there's you know the other side of the ledger, and then there's private markets as well. So I think however you want to frame this, so then we can lead into talking about senior secured loans, where they sit, and uh, and so on. Yep. Um, that will this will set the scene for the rest of the conversation. <clears throat> yep. Let, let's start off by talking about what senior secured loans are. So you're talking about senior secured loans to corporates, mainly in the US and Europe. Uh, and by senior, meaning at the top of the capital structure, 
secured, meaning you're backed by the company's assets. Mm-hmm. And that's in contrast to equities where you're at the um, the lowest or riskiest part of the capital structure and not backed by the company's assets. So if I, if I draw the contrast or parallel with, with equities, senior skilled loans and equities, in both instances, you're talking about exposure to corporates, mm-hmm. but it's just at a, a different uh, part of the capital structure. And in the case, as an, as an equity investor, you're looking to build a probably a concentrated portfolio of your best ideas of shares and you're looking to identify winners, right, yep. that are going to grow over time. As a senior skilled loan or a debt investor, you're probably looking for a much more diversified portfolio mm-hmm. um, as a credit investor. And I'll explain why later. But um, most importantly, you're not looking for winners. You're looking to avoid losers, right? Because at the end of the day, as a debt investor, you're handing over 100 bucks of principal. You want to get your regular income. And at the end of that time, you want to get your $100 back, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that's, that's sort of the parallel that you're still, in both instances, investing in corporates and taking on corporate risk or exposure, mm. uh, but just doing it at a different part of the capital structure to get a different outcome. As an equities investor, you, you're getting um, higher total returns, more volatility. As a senior skilled loan investor, you're getting um, you know stable monthly income, much lower volatility. Mm. So how would these sit? So on, I guess there's a, okay, I got a lot of questions about this, but one of the ones is when this you got a senior secured loan. What type of assets are they? And the corporates, can you give us a sense of, I guess, the makeup of the industry? Are these, would you, are you only lending to company? Are you only buying, like, lending these, like, making these loans to companies of a certain size by revenue? Like, mm-hmm. how do you think about, about that, the makeup of the industry? Yeah. So it's a very well established market. So it's about US $1.8 trillion uh, globally okay. across the US and, Europe, so a huge market. You're talking mm. about 1,500 issues or 1,500 different corporates uh, and across a variety of industries. That's one of the great benefits relative to Australia where we're obviously dominated by banks, banks, miners and yeah. residential property type exposures that this asset class is much more diversified across mm. industries. So about 20 different industries, the largest industry exposures in the order of 10 to 15% through time. So you've got things like um, information technology, equipment, equipment receivables, etc., or services. So it, it's it's greater diversity uh, by industry, and in terms of the size of the corporates, they're 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 quite large corporates. Are we talking about multi-billion-dollar in U.S. dollar terms, uh, enterprise value companies? Uh, so it's sort of the large sort of liquid mm. end of the market, and in many instances, they're globally recognized brands, well-known names, you know, some examples from the past that have issued senior skilled loans are Burger King, Dell, um, some of the major airlines like American Airlines, United Airlines, Hilton on, on the hotel side, uh, and, you know, Callaway Golf. So they're, they're well-known global brands, but it may be they're going through some form of restructure or acquisition that means they want to access a certain amount of debt within their capital structure and, and access the senior secured loan market. Hmm. So... Then what, I guess, you, you mentioned 4% on the, the bank bill rate, basically, is how people can think about that. Can you maybe make that juxtaposition again with equities? So you're saying the equity risk premium is about f- six? Yeah, cash, cash plus five, normally. Over the, over the very long term, there's plenty of evidence to show that for equities, you, you typically get about um, cash plus five. So cash as in yeah. risk-free rate plus a 5% um, 
illiquidity, sorry, 5% risk premium yep. on top of the cash rate. Um, you know, obviously it can be a volatile ride. Sometimes, some years you can mm. have 25% positives, other years you can have, you know, a negative, a significant negative return. So, but over the very long term, it's about cash plus five. Mm. And this asset class over the very long term is around about cash plus four. Uh, and, and that is generated by, you know, that the essential loans you're investing in pay a spread above the reference rate to mm. compensate you for the for the um, the risk that you're taking on, and so those spreads are typically between about three and five percent, depending on the risk of the corporate. So mm-hmm. over the long term, you expect sort of cash plus four. Mm. I remember I not too long ago I try to do this as kind of like a matter of a rigor. Just every year I try and calculate the equity premium for myself. Um, I think late last year I think it was about five point six is what I calculated. That was over mm-hmm. twenty years in Australia. Yeah, uh, that's for equities, obviously. Yeah. Um, so then I guess the other question is, so that's really interesting because rates are up, like cash rates up globally. So that's mm-hmm. all of a sudden becoming really interesting. The whole fixed income side is now becoming really interesting, whereas mm-hmm. the last five years it kind of hasn't been for a lot of investors at least. Um, so I guess the, the other side of that question is like that's the maybe the return profile if we think about it that way. But then what's the risk profile? So how do, like how do these senior secured loans tend to go with things like default rates and can you give us some context around that? Yeah. Uh, maybe before we get into defaults, let me just recap on sort of the key features of the yep. asset class. So you've got your high income, you know, you've got monthly stable income, it's currently about 7% per annum and growing. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, because of the current price of the market at 92 cents in the dollar, ah. your all-in yield over a three-year is about 11% per annum. So you're getting hmm. some very strong... Um, consistent income, but a, a good sort of total yield over a three-year view. So that's, that's, that's the first point is your, is your high income. Secondly, the fact that you are floating rate, and by that it means your income rises as interest rates rise, which provides you protection against inflation. And the third key feature we've talked about a bit, it's senior secured status, so being the safest part of the capital structure, which means in the event of default, which is you know your question, so, uh, you've got great protection. So on average, you can't, I mean, you can't get Seven percent income and eleven percent total yield without taking on risk, we right? Some risk. So sure. the risk in this asset class is is very much corporate exposure. However, you you are at the below investment grade end of the of the credit rating spectrum, mm. and so uh, the fact that you are senior secured provides great comfort around that. It's been going for over thirty years, so you know what to expect. So to give you some numbers around that, uh, on average through time, you have about two and a half percent defaults in the asset class, but because you are top of the capital structure, backed by the company's assets, on average, you have about 60 to 70 cents in the dollar back on recovery. So you're only losing sort of 30 to 40 cents in the dollar, which is a lot less than you are as a subordinated high yield or or an equity investor. So what that means, if you multiply that through, on average through time, your actual credit loss is about 0.9%. And if you think you're getting paid spreads of three to 5%, above cash to compensate you for that 0.9% credit risk. It's actually a very good um, compensation and risk-adjusted return outcome as a result of that. And so if you come back to that uh, parallels drawing with equities, so equities, you are investing in what would people would perceive as high quality companies from their, you know, their, in terms of their credit rating, but you're investing in the riskiest part of the capital structure, the first person to lose money if things go wrong. Yep. In the case of senior skilled loans, you are investing in 
below investment grade corporates, so riskier corporates yep. from a credit rating perspective, uh, because they have more leverage in their in their balance sheet, more debt. Uh, however, you're investing at the safest part of the capital structure, and the outcome is that uh, senior secured loans is considerably lower risk than equities, despite being lower quality from a credit rating perspective. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. So that's uh, that makes a lot of sense. So. How then, how does it work with credit ratings themselves? Do these corporates have credit ratings or do they kind of, I've heard before that um, maybe a lot of them don't need to be rated or these types of things, like it doesn't really matter because the assets are secured. How do you think about that? Uh, so in this particular segment, uh, it is rated in, in the vast majority of instances. So uh, as I said, they're rated below investment grade, but the vast majority of the universe and what we invest in is at the high quality end of that spectrum. So double B to single B in rating, but it, it goes all the way down to you know triple C, which are lower exposures. Yep. But it, at the end of the day, it's about, are you getting compensated for the risk you're taking on? And what's, what's your probability of default? What's recovery on default based on the assets that you secured against? Mm. Yeah, 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 no, that makes sense. So, um, be yeah, because you've got the assets uh, backing those. And like you said before, they're not necessarily, they're not tiny companies. It's not like the you're financing the local cafe's coffee machine or something like that. Yeah. Um, so I guess the other, the other part of this is how do investors typically get exposure to this? Yeah, so typically via a managed fund. Uh, mm -hmm. So one of the great benefits of this asset class is that it is, genuinely liquid. So for over 30 years, it's been proven to be highly liquid, even during the GFC and COVID, although it's privately traded mm. over the counter. To give you an example, uh, typically the annual secondary trading volumes are around about two thirds of the market size. And so it's a highly traded market with daily liquidity. Uh, that then allows uh, the, the managed fund structures that are on offer from ourselves and others to be daily price, daily liquidity, uh, and typically, for Australian investors, it's accessed via you know Australian feeder into a into a large um, overseas pool of assets mm. uh, that are diversified across industries. So that that level of liquidity is very rare in private markets, right? Normally, in mm. private markets, you've got long term lockups or you've got monthly yeah. or quarterly liquidity. So to have daily liquidity in this asset class is a great feature. One of the things that I heard um, is that. Obviously, we've been through the dot-com crash, which was, for some investors, that was a very different experience to the GFC, which was a financial crisis, right? Mm -hmm. And then we had COVID. And now people are thinking, as we stare into 2023, what's happened in the US recession, you know, thinking alarm bells there. How does what we are seeing now in this asset class compare to what happened in the GFC? Yeah, so, okay, so as I said, the asset class has been going for over 30 years. There's really two periods where there was short-lived mark-to-market uh, -mark sort of capital volatility mm. in this asset class. The GFC, uh, where it, it um, again, the credit loss was pretty modest, but the it did uh, sell off and recover very strongly in, and then in 2009 recovered very strongly. And then in uh, COVID, it, it very briefly sold off from a capital perspective and then recovered back towards par very quickly because of that senior secured status. For the vast majority of the rest of the period, it's a very stable, upwardly sloping return profile and you get your regular income, but there can be this sh very short-lived 
capital mark to market because your daily price at the end of the day, right? So in terms of your question about now versus the GFC, interestingly, the current pricing of the asset class, which is about 92 cents in the dollar today, already is pricing in a similar to a GFC style event in terms of a recession. Uh, if you think about it, you're getting, if you're buying it at 92 cents in the dollar and you know you're getting paid back at, you know, they get refinanced at par over a sort of a two to three year time frame on, on average, then you've just got to think about between buying at 92 and getting refinanced at par, what's my risk of default and recovery on that? And so that's already priced into markets. Markets are pricing in, you know, in the order of six to 8% defaults. And yet the last 12 to 18 months, defaults have been about 0.2, 0.3%, so way below that two and a half percent average. Sure, we expect defaults to go up um, to that sort of two to 3% long-term average, but that's more than already priced in to the market. Mm. So it's always about, yeah, I mean, sure, we've got a the risk of recession coming. We think that this uh, these defaults will be more company specific. Past default cycles have been somewhat industry specific, whether it be there's periods in time where, you know, you talked about tech wreck, uh, there's been energy crises or, you know, the financial crisis that impacted particular industries. We expect this time it's going to be more company specific where it's companies that, um, you know, over levered, mm. uh, can't uh, service their debt, uh, can't withstand uh, inflationary pressures, rising interest costs or the negative impact on EBITDA from recessionary risk is going to be quite company specific, but very manageable in terms of the default levels uh, and already priced into the market. Um, so we see upside from the capital front as well as the, you know, your regular income that's growing. Now versus the GFC, uh, it's quite a different perspective. So this asset class now has a much more diversified investor base and great um, support for the asset class when it prices down to certain levels because you've got some very sophisticated institutional investors that will take advantage of that. So when it earlier this year, um, in first week of July, it traded down about 90 cents in the dollar and quite quickly traded up to 95 and is now back around that sort of 92, 93 cent level. So you've got a much more diversified investor base. You've got more conservative leverage uh, within the corporates, better interest coverage ratios, et cetera. So for a whole variety of reasons, the asset class is in much healthier shape and the corporates themselves in much healthier shape now than where they were uh, leading into the GFC, which is why we only expect defaults to go up to that sort of long-term average of 2 to 3%. Hmm. Yeah. I, uh, so a lot of people listening to this, are particularly uh, people like uh, thinking about an income focus and um, I see why you said that in your answer in the icebreaker, you know, having that exposure to the to the asset class as an income generation tool, but also in total return terms, because we've as a I guess as a collective have always think always thinking like, well, the last ten years bonds have only gone one way, which has been good if you've been holding them, right? Like mm-hmm. government bonds or whatever. Uh, the last few years, some of us have thought, well, we need to shift away from this duration risk. And now interest rates are coming back. Earnings still seem to be holding up in the US in particular. Um, I was looking at facts set the other day. It's in line with historical averages, mm. which probably makes a bit of sense in an inflationary environment. Um, but then to be able to shift potentially, this is just me talk, thinking yeah. out loud here, shifting part of a portfolio towards an asset class like this seems to make a lot of sense from a yield perspective because 
it's kind of that that middle ground between you're not taking the huge duration risk, but you're getting that floating rate yeah. exposure. I don't know. I don't, that was just me riffing. <laughs> I, no, you're I, spot on. That's that's exactly why senior skilled loans can be so complementary to your more traditional forms of, of fixed income. So you make the point that historically, over the last few decades, investors have been highly dependent on more traditional fixed rate bonds that have got you know a lot a lot of duration. So you know your government bonds, your investment grade mm. bonds. Um, Whereas this asset class is, is quite the opposite from, and so the yield on this asset class, as I mentioned earlier, three-year yield of about 11% currently, that's about three times what you're getting on um, treasury yields in the US. It's about double the yield that you're getting on investment grade bonds, and yet you're doing it at near zero interest rate risk or near zero duration, mm. whereas some of those investment grade or treasury asset classes have sort of um, you know six to eight years worth of duration or interest rate sensitivity. And so historically, we've been highly reliant on a declining rate environment yeah. and government bonds and investment grade benefiting from that. As rates have risen over the last six to 12 months, uh, those segments, investment grade and government bonds have produced really sharp negative returns, uh, whereas floating rate credit like senior skilled loans has managed to produce flat to you know, strongly positive returns during that environment. And it's highlighted to investors for the first time in a long time, the benefits of having uh, floating rate exposure, the benefit of having a, a high yield with near zero interest rate risk and the complementary role that can play within a diversified portfolio. So, you know, coming back to funding sources, for a, for a diversified portfolio, we're seeing this asset class funded from the likes of equities and Bonds, given that senior skilled loans is classified as a sort of a low to mid risk asset class, it'll be funded from equities and bonds. And on, in an income portfolio, it's typically funded from hybrids or bonds to provide, you know, floating rate exposure uh, that's more global in nature. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting because, I mean, I deal with a lot of listed products here in Australia, like listed funds and whatever, and there's t maybe 10, you know, maybe not even. Um, and so, thinking outside the box here, there's a lot more exposure um, that you can get from this. In terms of that, actually, when it comes to constructing portfolios, I had to just say Invesco generally, we don't need to talk about specific products, but when it comes to constructing portfolios, you mentioned before that in this asset class, diversification is really important because it's about avoiding the losers. Mm -hmm. What would What's typical in, say, an established uh, fund or structured but in terms of exposures here, like how many holdings would there be? How many underlying assets? Yeah, so you're typically talking in the hundreds, so four right. to five hundred different corporates. And as I mentioned earlier, there's about fifteen hundred that are uh, investable. So you've got plenty to choose from, but you're looking to spread that risk across a variety of corporates and industries. Typically, it's your top hundred to one hundred and fifty corporates that are where you're taking the bulk of your exposures or your active risk. But to give you a sense. Largest holdings would typically be in the order of one or two percent, uh, because coming back to that point around avoiding losers in an asset class like credit, where your upside is limited and mm. your downside can be significant in default, you want to make sure that you spread your risk across a variety of corporates because you, at the end of the day, you're just trying to pick up the, the income and the yield, and you want to be paid your hundred dollars back at at maturity. So, looking to spread that uh, exposure corporates across. Plenty of names, which is, as I said, a contrast to an equity portfolio where you might be trying to pick your top 
30 to 50 mm. names that are going to um, produce the best total returns over time. Uh, you don't want that sort of concentration in a credit portfolio. Mm. Um, do you think that these types of products, so I'm talking from a self-directed, mostly, most as I mentioned, most people that listen to the show, including myself, are self-directed investors and we're looking at managed funds, listed products, whatever, um, but still, and you've been doing this for a long time, right? And I'm having this conversation mm. now. Do you think that these types of funds and these types of strategies are going to become more prevalent? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, obviously, private markets and uh, credit investing has been available for wholesale and self-directed investors for a while, but it's great to see that the broadening of that. And so, yeah, I mean, senior skilled loans is an asset class, as I mentioned, uh, available via managed funds, typically a pretty low sort of minimum to, to invest via a PDS or that's available on uh, platforms with no minimums. That that, that sort of um, hmm. access is, is there. Uh, and I think that the the access for self-directed or wholesale or retail investors towards private markets and to senior skilled loans is is, is just going to grow mm. over time because what what we're seeing on the ground is that there's there's demand for uh, private markets and there's demand for diversity across portfolios, going more global, going more floating rate, and so um, yeah, I see that the the opportunity set in terms of access methods to only grow from here for self-directed investors. Um, I've got maybe just a couple of questions just to tack on here. Did I did I hear you say correctly, Ashley, that this is one of the, do you think this is one of the better opportunities that have presented themselves or on, on a forward-looking basis in, a, in quite a long time? For this asset class? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> um, I believe, it, so it's been going for over 30 years. Yep. And the best entry point of this asset class was during the depths of the GFC. That's when I helped. Um, I did a lot of research into the asset class, the the role it can play in a portfolio, and researched about twenty of um, the specialist senior good loan managers in the space, and helped Frontiers Industry Fund client base to build their exposures. That was the the best entry point in the asset class because it was just this um, technical sell off that was trading way below fundamentals. It was a an obvious upside capital opportunity. The reason I think now is um, the best entry, one of the best entry points in the asset class history and certainly the best entry point I've seen since I got to know the asset class in the 08, 09 period is that you've got, as I mentioned, 7% per annum income that's growing with rate rises and there's about 150 basis points of rate rises that are still expected to come through that you benefit from. And you've got the fact that it's trading at 92 cents in the dollar, right? So you've got potentially 8% worth mm. of capital upside depending on what defaults transpire. But as I said, I think defaults are going to be a lot lower than what's currently priced in to mm. the market and will be more in line with historical averages. So I, I come back to that sort of what that gives you when you allow for 7% income that's growing and your potential capital upside. That's where you get your all-in three-year yield number of 11%. Uh, per annum, which I think is is uh, a really interesting yield, uh, and in order to have say downside to that, um, you know, even a low, low low return or a negative return, you've got to have a pretty deep recession mm. and more significantly more defaults than what's currently priced into the market. So, from a risk adjusted perspective, it feels like a really solid yield 
with senior secured status um, in a proven low volatility asset class that that um, has good protections given your your entry point of mm. 92 cents. If the entry point was a dollar, then there would be a different situation, right? But at 92 cents, then I think that's a really compelling um, risk-adjusted return opportunity over the next, say, 12, 18 months to three years. We've definitely, you definitely got me really interested. <laughs> um, so you've done a done a good job of explaining it um, because this is, yeah, I don't want to get too far over myself, but this is something that I've been like I've been looking for these types of things in the makeup of portfolios, mm-hmm. and I get a lot of questions about um, this side of the portfolio. If, if Drew was in on this conversation, he'd probably call it defensive alts, but uh, and that's kind of how I think about it. But um, yeah, it's really interesting to get that spread above the cash rate right now. Um, interesting anyway. So I'm going to go and do a lot of thinking about this. But I've got one well, final question. For just, just wait, sorry, just one. You made that point around defensive alts. One thing I haven't mentioned is around why I classify as a low to mid risk. So yeah, there's, there's three, point, yeah. three key ways of thinking about risk, I see, right? You've got volatility. So volatility in this asset class is sort of 2 to 5% over a rolling five-year basis. So about a third of equity volatility, mm, okay. right? So you've got low volatility. Uh, frequency of negative return is another way to think about risk. There's only been two negative returns in this asset class, you know, in its over 30-year history, the, the one in the GFC in 08, and then there was a very small negative in 2015 that, interestingly, for an $8 hedged investor, was actually a slight positive. So that means you've only had one negative in 30 years as an $8 hedged investor. That compares to other forms of fixed-rate bonds or equities that have more frequent negative returns. Third way of thinking about risk would be permanent loss of capital. So income drives this asset class. You can have mark-to-market capital volatility, but in terms of permanent loss of capital, as I mentioned earlier, 0.9% per annum on average, given you are senior secured within the capital structure. So that's pretty modest relative to other Mm. types of investing where your capital loss can be more significant. So if I summarize that across volatility, frequency of negative return, and the risk of permanent loss of capital, this is actually a low to mid-risk asset class despite being uh, below investment grade. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Um, My final question for you is what's one thing that you believe – this is a hard question, by the way. (laughs) What's one thing that you believe about business, investing, life, whatever, that few people would agree with you on? Uh, So I don't know whether people would agree with me on it or not, but the one thing that I think – I, I use as a philosophy is making sure that in any situation to really focus on the things that matter. And so typically in, in so many things in life, in, in, in investments, in business, in personal life, there's so many different factors, influences or distractions, right? But so often there's really only a few things that really matter. Mm. So it's about in that situation identifying what matters uh, and so for investing, you know, clearly, you know, my, my background, uh, the thing that's that matter to me is strategic asset allocation, mm. diversification, knowing what you own and how it's going to behave, right? So that you can make informed decisions of buying and selling through time and, you know, be a smart investor. But, you know, in, in personal life, you know, it may be your, your spouse, your kids, the sport you play, your, your passion, whatever it might be, trying to avoid... Uh, the rat race and technology and distractions and really focus in on what matters because often there's only a few things that really 
influence the ultimate outcome. It's really, it's really neat, and I've got so many examples from life, but maybe I'll give one to the podcast. And anyone that wants to start a podcast is make sure your guests are great and don't worry about everything else. You know, that's, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. the big one, right? That's the thing that matters. Yeah. Uh, people spend thousands of dollars on recording equipment and all these types of things, but what matters is making sure you have a great conversation. Yeah. Um, and that's, yeah, and that's so that we can take that in so many different ways. But, mate, I really appreciate you taking the time to explain this asset class to us because it's really got me thinking. Um, when I was, I was, we were thinking about doing this chat, I was like, I don't know anything about this. This is, <laughs> this is something that um, for me, I was like, will people be interested in this? But I've, I've found it like really interesting, really illuminating to shine the light on this side of the, the market. So, Ashley, I really appreciate you taking some time to, to fill me in and, and open my eyes to, to the asset class. Thanks, Owen. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. As you can tell, it's an asset class I'm very passionate about. So, you know, I think that it is really interesting and, and, and a great uh, diversifier yeah. for, for portfolios. Yeah, great. I'll, just for everyone that's uh, listening or watching, I will put links in the show notes so you can uh, head to the Invesco website to learn more about this, look at insight pieces and all that sort of stuff. Ashley, thanks for taking some time to join me. Thank you. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.